0: I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers Festival, and you're listening to a 2017 Festival podcast proudly powered by Spark. The New York Times said of John Lanchester, the novelist, memoirist, and journalist, that he is a man who writes sagely and elegantly about food, family, culture, technology, and money. He is the author of four novels, including The Debt to Pleasure and Capital, which has been made into a BBC television series, as well as The Bluffer's Guide, How to Speak Money, which demystifies the workings of the global economy and the financial markets. He has been fated with prizes and translated into many languages, and he joined Finlay MacDonald to talk fiction and fact, food and football, Brexit and other low points in a session supported by Heartland Bank. We hope you enjoy it.
1: Off just in case. Um, I'd like to acknowledge very much the assistance um, of Heartland Bank for their support of the festival and of our esteemed guests' visit to Auckland. So, without further ado, it's a privilege to be able to talk to this uh, man uh, on your behalf. Please welcome John Lanchester. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> Um, I thought maybe a good place to start might be to observe that the, the global financial crisis was not a very good thing for many people, but for you it seemed to have a bit of a silver lining in that you got t- at least two works of non-fiction a- and a, a blockbuster novel out of it. So I'm, <laughs> I'm interested in how that happened and in what order it happened.
2: Yeah, well, it's an ill wind. <laughs> I say. Um, well, it, it was... It was Purely coincidental, I wanted to write a novel about, about London, partly because I didn't grow up there, I moved there when I was 25, and it seemed to have changed so much and to be a really interesting subject that was sort of right in front of my nose. And so I was um, in the early stages of that. And um, there was a man called uh, Geoffrey Bernard, who's a wonderful old drunk, who used to write a column in The Spectator about being a wonderful old drunk. Mm. And, and he once reported a conversation he overheard at the, at the bar of the Coach and Horses, his favorite pub, which is Man A to Man B. I'm writing a novel, which Man B said, neither am I. <laughs> 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 and that sort of slightly sums up my working method in the early stages. So I was non-metaphorically looking out the window, um, pretending to work, and um, I just I noticed this thing about how many deliveries there were in the street, that there were vans constantly going to houses, there were florists, there were wine merchants, there were dog walkers, there would be competing dog walkers whose dogs would get tangled up around each other and start fighting and defecating and all this sort of stuff. Um, And there were, you never, it was like a work of feminist, it's a sort of feminist utopian science fiction because there were no men, because they all work in the city of London, they all work in finance, so they leave the house before dawn and get back after dark. There were no men, but they were continuing to breed because people would come out and load babies into SUVs. And Can I just ask, sorry to interrupt, but you were looking out the window where? Which part of London? In, in Clapham, where we've lived for a gazillion, right. gazillion years. But we're sort of the last of the indigenous inhabitants in Clapham because it used to be a more, more mixed and more diverse place. But now, it's, um, you know, finance just actually changed the inhabitants of the street. I mean, it's, it's, it's literally who your neighbours are now. And I was very slow to realise why, and then one day I had to meet a friend out in the, um, in the East End Canary Wharf and realise that it's because of the new underground connection. The Jubilee Line means it's 20 minutes. Um, so, so I was looking out the window, thinking about this, and thinking, well, it's like the houses have turned into people. The houses have all these needs and demands and servants and services. And that's the opening of Capital. That's the first, first page. And then because I, and I thought at the same time, well, this must, this must be going to go wrong. It feels like a bubble it feels like it's going to pop. What year are we talking? 2005, 2006. Um, And so I started the book on the assumption that the reader, I thought, you know, okay, it's going to pop. And if I start with this moment of peak frenzy and, you know, fighting dog walkers, um, the reader will know that it's going to go wrong, but the characters won't. So it's a, a a dramatic irony in the classic sense where the audience, know something that the people on stage don't so if there's like a giant boulder rolling down towards us on that screen you know they would they know it and we don't and so metaphorically there was this giant boulder in the form of this this bubble and and at the same time I'd started to find out a little bit about the way finance worked as finance was clearly so important to the way London had changed Um, and then the credit crunch happened and a thing that I thought was going to be a local bubble you know a property bubble of the sort that. Had already popped once in my adult lifetime. At my first flat, I bought in '87. I took a gigantic bath on it. Um, it lost about 40% of its value because it was exactly the wrong moment. So don't take my advice on investing in anything. <coughs> um, and the weird thing was, everyone had forgotten. We had a property bubble that popped in about 1990, and it was as if it had happened in, you know, 1790. <laughs> it was complete amnesia. Um, and so okay. So I thought pro- London property bubble. And then when it actually happened, it turned into this thing that was much more global, much more systemic, and frankly, much more frightening. And I began following the story, you know, through, as you say, two books. So events actually caught up with you before you published? They did, yeah. Um, By the time I finished, let me think about the timing, I finished Capital. I finished a draft of it the end of 2009. And by that point, I knew quite a lot about finance. and I knew too much, actually, for the purposes of the book, because mm. one of the things that happens with research, you have to be very careful about it, because the risk is that you end up using it. Um, and so if you, you know, if you go on a research trip to you know, Mumbai or Bangalore, your characters end up going to Mumbai and Bangalore, even if they should just stay in Herne Hill where they belong. <laughs> you know, it's very hard to, yeah. there's, a thing, there's a gloomy term in economics, one of the many gloomy but useful. It's called the tyranny of sunk costs once you put the effort in it's very hard to walk away so I knew all this stuff and I didn't want to put it in the novel because I thought I'd have a scene where as Nigel looked towards the lights of Canary Wharf glinting in the horizon he struggled to remember the definition of a collateralized debt obligation <laughs> um, I'm glad you um, took that line out uh, yeah, and, and then the next thing you know, the, the, the milkman's at the front door and your reader is waking up. Um, so, I wrote the non-fiction partly as a way to quarantine, mm. whoops, my first book about it. I finished a draft of Capital and wrote whoops as a way of kind of quarantining all that n- interesting but um, fictionally problematic stuff. So, you put capital in the drawer
1: yeah. and then turn to non-fiction.
2: Yeah, I always try and put a novel in a drawer for a bit and in order to see it more clearly. Mm. Um, i always have fantasies about what I'm going to get done. I'm going to learn German. I'm going to do a charity half marathon. I'm going to find out what's in that cupboard. <laughs> you know, it's actually that slightly frightening cupboard. I can't, you anyway. yeah. um, know. And I never do any of that. I like, wake up six months later and, oh, great, six months, have just gone past, and guiltily get back to it. And this is the only time I've ever made productive use of that. Um, by writing nonsense. By writing whoops. And then it actually turned out to be much more disruptive than I realised, because, you know, writing it took longer than I expected, publishing it took longer than I expected. And when I went back to Capital, it was in 2011, and it was quite strange, it was like it was someone else's book. Um, so it did take a bit of, and I actually had a moment where I thought, you know, I've overdone it, I've left it too long. Hmm. I don't actually recognise this book. Um, and then, in fact, I think it was very useful, it was very useful to the process of seeing it clearly and editing it and kind and of did the fact it.
1: Did the fact that you'd, in the meantime, done all of that research for the nonfiction, mean that you edited the
2: the draft harder? Did you Um, take stuff out? No, I think it was more an effect, I did take stuff out, but it was more an effect of having a bit of distance. I didn't make many changes to do with the finance stuff, partly because if I had, you know, the finance stuff, you have to explain it, Mm. and you can do almost anything in fiction. You can, I mean, I think the book that proves it, there's a, a John Updike novel where the characters change gender and change race halfway through, and that sort of proves that anything's possible my wife Miranda actually reviewed it for L along with a book by PD James and the sub editors got them the wrong way around (laughs) so there were these readers of L who have these these capsule reviews so you know it's kind of slightly surprising that John Updike's written the latest installment of the Inspector Dalgleish novels (laughs) (laughs) and PD James's novel a satire on sexual satire (laughs) on magical realism set in Brazil in which the hero's penis is regularly compared to a yam you never know. But the point about that is you can, you can do anything in fiction, yeah. but you can't explain. You know, explanation kills narrative, kills drama. I wanted to ask that
1: question anyway, for, sort of from the other way around. You, you can explain a lot with non-fiction, obviously, but they say, you know, if you want the truth, go, go to fiction. So what, could you, what did you think you could do at the outset with Capital that you knew you couldn't really do with non-fiction? Where would it take you that is
2: closer to the truth, perhaps? I wanted to have that sense of, in in modern, you know, the world presses on a modern city. You have people from everywhere. You have, in a way, themes from everywhere. You see in London things about inequality, about, um, you know, just displacement. I mean, in a literal way, Somalia implodes, and then there's 200,000 Somalis living in London in the southeast. And so I wanted to have a structure where the world Presses on the city, and then the city presses on this street, just to have that sense of um, uh, ki- uh, so V.S. Pritchett, as uh, a great literary critic, said about Kipling. This wonderful thing that Kipling's characters are always thickly neighbored. And I, I wanted to have that feeling of, of a place feeling thickly neighbored in the way that London does to me. And mm. you can't really do that in nonfiction. It's a different tool. I mean, one of the odd things about, to go back to this thing about explanation, fiction has to feel true but lots of things that happen don't. In real life, things that feel wildly untrue happen all the time. It's just that they happen to happen. And that's the, almost the most important distinction, that you have to have a sense of um, veracity in a novel, which actually isn't the same thing as obeying the, the literal truth. And I just wanted to have something that felt true to the experience of living in you know, maybe any big city, but it happened to be the big city I knew.
1: Yeah, and you, didn't,
2: you you're not a native Londoner. Um,
1: So I did wonder when I was reading it, do you bring that outsider's eye, do you think? Do you find it exotic as opposed to normal?
2: Maybe a bit. Um, I mean, I grew up, I was born in Germany, I grew up mainly in Hong Kong, and I think that um, (coughs) element of displacement or coming from somewhere else was certainly something um, that you know affected, I think maybe you you see things a bit more clearly if you're, as it were, from somewhere else. Hmm. And I, th- I think I saw the changes in London more clearly than people who'd done who you know lived there all the way through. And it's like the thing about you know boiling a frog from low temperature; they don't, the frog doesn't notice. And yeah. I think lots of locals were boiled frogs uh, in terms of the, the changes that had happened, especially around the revolution in finance and finance becoming so central to what mm. London is. Because you
1: said earlier, you know, that you you suspected a bubble was going to burst. Um, which is quite prescient of you. <clears throat> I mean, not not everyone was saying that, and a lot of people were caught caught out by it. Do you do well, you think you were prescient?
2: No. Well, I It just uh, it seemed kind of obvious, though. And and the thing about you know this amnesia seemed very obvious, awesome. But my dad my dad worked for a bank. He's not a banker in the modern sense, but um, my late father worked for um, what was an, a sleepy colonial institution called the Hong, Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank. And Bang. that's why you moved around. That's when why you were young. moved around so yeah. much. And when he dad worked for it it was the hundredth biggest bank in Asia it's now the second biggest bank in the world um, but he he once said um, he was fond of quoting a thing that you know uh, all you need to be an investment genius is a short memory and a rising market <laughs> and that seemed to I mean it might be slightly true of the Auckland property market at the moment and it was certainly true of the London property market then everyone was convinced that they were incredibly good with money and economics and finance and you know, they felt like masters of the universe just because the value of their house was going up. That's right, yeah. Um, and so that did look, you know, I'd seen it implode once, and it was clearly going to implode again. And by the way, I'm completely wrong. Because of all the asset categories in the world, literally in the whole world, one of the only things that was completely unaffected by the credit crunch mm. was London property. Because the pound fell steeply in value, and a tide of foreign capital came pouring in. So I was, you know, I was very, very... I was, I felt, I felt about as, you said it's prescient, but actually I was also as wrong as you can possibly be because the one specific prediction I made was a crash in London property market. That was the thing that got me started on that book and it didn't happen. Right. You, um,
1: you mentioned backstage actually Michael Lewis as a, as a writer who you know slightly I think. Yeah. Um, he praised you in one of the blurbs of one of your books and I remember reading his book Liar's Poker ages years ago, um, which opened my eyes to the shenanigans of financial markets and so on. I'm interested how much, I mean, who has informed your writing on that subject? And who have you learnt from? And how much did you know before you started, really? I mean, the son of a banker, obviously.
2: but And how much did you self-educate? To um, a really culpable degree, I knew nothing. Um, I, I say culpable because I think we actually, we should as citizens know more about how the system works. But I, you know, I went to a good university. I got a first-class degree in English. I worked for a political and literary magazine for 10 years. And I didn't know what fiscal and monetary meant till I was, till I was 48, despite having heard both terms, but I'd say probably 100,000 times each. Yes. And I sort of kindly, vaguely-ish knew, but I didn't actually know what the difference was and, and why it mattered. And I, you know, I feel that was negligent. Um, that's one of the reasons I've ended up writing them book about yeah. trying to popularise economics, because it's really important we get a hold of this stuff, otherwise it's only a language and a knowledge that belongs to the insiders, it belongs to the people who run it. Um, so no, I knew, I knew you know, nothing, um, and, and that, which is also why it's been interesting to write about, because I've been finding out as I go along.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's slightly analogous to you know, being an outsider writing about London. Do you think not being an initiate of sorts helped you see things more clearly or ask
2: the silly questions which are actually the most, you know, often the most revealing. You do, you do have to be willing to ask the, you know, the, the blindingly obvious question. Um, and uh, I mean, my favorite version of that was a, was a Victorian story about a, a, a small, small boy with his mother watching, I think it's Lord Palmerston who's then the Prime Minister go past in his frock coat and top hat and all that and pointing, saying, mummy, what is that man for? <laughs> so, you know, it's quite a good, good question about yeah. um, prime ministers and, and it's quite a good question in life in general. And um, I, I, w- one of the things that happened actually while I was working on works, I was at some, some briefing thing. Um, it was one of those things where you're m- not meant to say what happened, but you know, I hope my secret is safe with you. Um, and uh, it was the then chancellor was giving this off-the-record briefing. And, and he said something like, it was something like, you know, one of those economists speak things like, well, the thing, about M3, the thing about the effect of QE2 on M3 money supply is... And I suddenly had this moment of, oh, shit, <laughs> I understood that. You know, I'm becoming one of them, I'm crossing over. Right. And I did have this feeling that I, would, then I wouldn't be able to translate. I wouldn't be in the gap anymore. Because yes. the thing about that language, actually, <clears throat> it is powerful and useful. It does help you communicate concisely. About that stuff. The only problem is it just stops you talking to everyone else. Because mm,
1: is it because what is being described is so innately complex that the language becomes a kind of code anyway, or is it a slightly deliberate act of cloaking this
2: mysterious world in secrecy so that we don't understand? I, my view is darkened. I used to think that it was just because it's complex. You know, it's complex. So. You know, CDS's and CDO's and RMBS and all that, all of which were real things in the credit crunch, they're complicated. Mm. But I now think there is an element of deliberate obfuscation. Um, So so things like, you know, a term like quantitative easing doesn't at all explain itself. If you say to someone who doesn't know what you think of quantitative easing, they're likely to think it's a brand of laxative. (laughs) What do you think of quantitative easing? Well, my grandmother said, you know, just have a bowl of prunes.
1: In a sense, it is.
2: And it doesn't tell you that it's what it is, which is a radical new technique for governments to print money like it's going out of style without admitting that's what they're doing. Yes. Um, So I think there is, and people in that world have told me that you get obfuscation at two points. When you've just cooked up a new product, it's helpful if it has an opaque name because the longer it's proprietary to you, the more money you make because the advantage doesn't get competed away. So you call it something obscure. And the other point at which you give it a deliberately complicated name is when you're selling it, because you don't want the customer to fully understand. Hmm. Because again, the less the customer understands, the more money you make, which is is grim, but I I think that's that's why there is a kind of conscious opacity to some of the language.
1: Yeah, I, I, I mean, it occurred to me that even some of the people who were deeply involved in the causes of the crisis didn't understand it either. I mean, they may have spoken the jargon, but did they truly
2: understand? Definitely not. And I've heard, you know, um, in fact, it was at, at that same briefing, um, a, a board level, a senior board level member of one of the, one of the huge, because the, the British banks are freakishly big. Mm. You know, the, the four biggest banks are five times the size of our economy in terms of the balance sheet. And so, you know, they, they are frighteningly big and frighteningly powerful when things go wrong. And, and this chap had gone up to the then chancellor and said, um, "Chancellor, I've got some good news. We've decided we're no longer going to invest in things we don't understand." And you think, "Well, th- th- thanks a lot." After we've written a tr- mm. £800 billion pound check for the flipping bailout, you know. Um, and I think there was—I think there was this, an internal cultural problem that you had quants, as they're co- called in finance, you know, maths nerds designing these super-complicated packages of derivatives and financial instruments bundled together some of which are sold as what they call black spot black box derivatives where literally the person selling it and the person buying it doesn't know what's in it they don't know what they're investing in they just know what the yield is and what the risk is supposed to be and the rest is just mainly lines of computer code some of them are lines of um, the Bank of England said it a billion lines of computer code involved in some of these packages and so actually with that nobody knows really what they're doing What's fascinating to me about
1: that – excuse me <clears> – <throat> is that inevitably you get to this question which is really rather philosophical at the heart of it, you know, what money is. And, and in many ways that's what a lot of your writing boils down to, trying to explain this nebulous concept that we think of as folding things that you put in your pocket. Um, and now we're sort of heading into the era of Bitcoin. I'm just interested in your potted sort of um, history of w- what you where you think we've come from and where, we, where you think we're going in terms of this enormous financialization of the economy and the, the, the size of that financial market compared to real economies. Yeah. And, you
2: know. Well, I think, you know, financial markets are just, are just too big. And it has been extensively studied by academics looking for a benefit. You know, where's the benefit of the scale of finance proportionate to everything else, the speed and completeness of liquidity of international money and all that. And no one's been able to find it. Um, and I think you have to conclude that finance just is too big. And I think we can all understand the kind of banking that is socially useful, that, you know, when you've got when you've got spare cash, you deposit it and it's safe. And when you need money for your house or your business or whatever, you can borrow it. And that the the utility of that, the function of that, we all we can all understand. Um, it's the kind of you know, it's the old fashioned banking, it's what is sometimes called the 363 model, where the bank takes deposits at three percent. Lends money at six percent, and they're on the golf course by three o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which, which is unfair to that kind of banker, but it, it just describe. You know, we all get that. That's what we understand. But a lot of the things that happen in, inside finance are just so a pure. Um, I mean, it's like some, something out of Harry Potter. The extent to which it's making money out of money, and as I say, it's not. You know, the risks are clear when it goes wrong, and when it blows up, because we end up paying for the bailouts. The taxpaying we. And the benefit is just not obvious. Because a lot of the time it's institutions betting against each other. It's Mm. a a zero sum. You know, one institution wins, one institution loses. And yet when it goes wrong on a big scale, we're all poorer. And Mm. it's just not obvious um, where the benefit is. And also
1: the scale of it is terrifying in the sense that, you know, there's no such thing as too big to fail anymore what is going to actually happen given the, the sort of amnesia that we routinely suffer from
2: yeah
1: You're not writing another novel now set in a, in a dystopian future where the entire things fallen to pieces are you? No,
2: um, I, I pitched a, a thing about School for Wizards and the publisher had some oh, piffling objection that. Um, n- No, uh, I'm, I'm not but I, and um, but I have taken a break from writing about the money stuff partly because um, you know, it's, it ends up being a bit depressing because to a large extent it's you know, stories about the bad guys getting away with it. Um, and also I've actually started to come to think that, that economics and fiction are enemies because economics en- explains things, it reduces things, it boils things down. Ian um, Wilson was talking earlier about about the work that Asperger's being kind of used too much as a reductive mm. explanation for, and you know, he thinks that's just what men are like. <laughs> um, and, and there's, a bit, there's something like about economics, which is a bit like that, which is if you boil everything down to economic motive, you take an event like this, and economists would say, well, people are either, you know, maybe they're signaling the kind of person they are, or they're spending money because they think it's you know, educationally useful, mm. and that's the utility of it, which is a kind of grotesquely reductive, distorted... Um, reduced, shrunk account of why people do the things they do, our complexity, the diversity of our motives, the fact that we often don't understand our own motives. So people are just a lot more complicated and interesting than economics can make them sound. And I've ended up thinking that, as I say, that actually the project of writing novels, which is about reflecting complexity, finally, and interest and diversity in the the ways we're different, the ways we're the same, economics actually is kind of an enemy to that. And in fact, if you think about it, if you're ma- trying to imagine a novel where everyone's motives were purely economic, all the way through the book, it'd be, really an o- it'd be a really strange book. It'd be an interesting sort of
1: thought experiment to try and write it, wouldn't it? It would,
2: yeah. I have thought about it. I thought, actually, it's impossible. The closest that comes to it, I think, is, is Balzac in the 19th century. Um, Cousin Bet, everyone in it is, you know, their mo- motives are purely mercenary. And it's like, it's a glimpse of, It's a glimpse into the abyss actually Mm. as a book it's one of the most radical novels there is um and um and there's something very very cold and alien about that view of who we are sure maybe more economists should read more fiction yes well I, i know you know there's at least one prominent economics blogger who reads a lot of fiction and reads a lot of and watches a lot of movies and comments on them, but he does it in a very kind of, in a way that really only an economist would do, which is like speed reading 30 pages to get the gist, and preferring subtitled films because you can watch them on 2.5 times fast forward, so you get the gist, and And you feel like saying, i I tell you what, mate, just just don't. (laughs) Such an efficient use of time. Would you like me to buy you a train set? Because I think you might be happier with that.
1: but that—that's sort of—it's it, what you were—you were talking about earlier about um, what economies have done. I mean, if how do you inject the humanity back into um, this pseudoscience? How and how has economics become so? I don't know, emaciated in that sense. What, what happened? Where did, was there well, a key still, moment?
2: There's still think? lots of interesting things going on in it. You know, I—I I, I don't want to. Um, broad brush it too much, because there's lots of different fields and, and subspecialties and lots of things where there are really interesting and useful stuff being found out, especially in terms of how, how people behave, and there are different camps, and all mm. sort of, it's, it's a very diverse field. But I think, you know, partly that the macroeconomics, which is the study of all the big picture stuff about how economies work, um, which I, w- I once got in trouble at a, a thing with lots of economists saying, you know, it's the only field of human knowledge which you could sum up with a single word wrong and, and the audience laughed, but everyone ignored me in the bar afterwards. Um, and, um, and you know, it has gone down a kind of particular, mm. quite a sort of narrow gauge. And um, I don't know how we make it reconnect, but I think partly it's by just keeping people interested. At, one of the reasons I wrote this book, How to Speak Money, was I was, at a, I was at a thing in Kilkenny in Ireland, and Ireland was rocked back on its heels by the mm. credit crunch, the GFC. It was in 2010, and I felt it quite keenly, because I'm, my mother was Irish, I'm half Irish, I identify with um, Irish citizen, I identify with it, I feel for it. And um, you know, the country was on the brink of defaulting. And so they did a very Irish thing. Kilkenny has a big comedy festival, a very big, lively theatre. And they thought, well, you, you're either gonna laugh or you're gonna cry, so we might as well laugh. And so they created a thing called Kilkenomics, which is a, a festival of comedy and economics. It's the world's first and best, and indeed only, festival of comedy and <laughs> economics. And, and it was really radicalising, because every event mixed comedians and economists. And what would happen was that the economists would start talking, and they'd start talking in this private language, and they would actually literally start sort of leaning towards each other, doing all that stuff about you know RMBS and CDS <laughs> and CDS. And, all. and the, economists, the comedians would interrupt, usually by saying something along the lines of, excuse me, um, I hope you don't mind, but you might not have noticed. Nobody, in the, there's not a single fecker in this <coughs> room understands a single word of what you're saying, and it forced the economists to reconnect. And that was really there was something moving, actually, in its way, radicalising about that. That actually they, they wanted to connect, and it was important that they did connect. But they they'd sort of forgotten about yes about as it were them. And then there was a, and then there was the the sort of thing that really crystallised for me. They had a panel game. they had a comedian and an economist on each team, two teams, and there was a moderator who'd hold up a word, and the comedians would guess what the word meant, and they would riff on what it meant, and then the economists would explain what the word meant, and then the audience would vote on their (laughs) favourite version. And that's the thing that got me started on thinking about the idea that the language is really important. Yes. Just that simple but fundamental thing of literally just knowing what the words mean.
1: So, looking at it through your fiction lens now <coughs> because a lot of what you're talking about is critical thinking and you can read a novel like Capital as a piece of highly critical fiction in some ways. And I know some reviewers mention Dickens but you sort of don't you don't hold with that. But I it's a big, ambitious novel, and you started out thinking, "I want to write a novel about London." And I just wonder, w- what were your models and
2: what were your ambitions at that novelist's level? Well, I mean, the thing about Dickens, it's just that it's a bit like saying, you know, um, the ways in which I compare myself to Einstein are, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, <that's> um, <clears throat> I do think Dickens is a very great writer. Actually, funny enough, I, think, I almost think he's more of a, a dramatist and a poet than a, a novelist I think, in terms of his sort of raw talent. Um, I, I was thinking a lot about 19th century fiction. What, what happened was that I wanted to write this book about London, and I'd written three, three novels that are quite you know, contemporary in terms of technique, and they're preoccupied by point of view and who's telling the story and that, the thing I believe, actually, which is that who's telling the story determines what the story is and what the form of the story is and all that. So I was mulling over this London thing, and I thought, well, actually it's the thing Miranda said, that there's something about the condition of London now is, is like a like it was in the 19th century. And so I was thinking about this big, crowded, populated book. And and it occurred to me, you know what, if I was writing in 1850, I'd actually, I'd have more permission to do what I wanted. I wouldn't have to think about point of view. I wouldn't have to, you know, think about what characters can and can't know and what I can and can't say about them. I would just have a completely blank check to be omniscient, to go into and out of people's heads, to do anything I wanted. And it was, a, it was a strange thought, actually, because that that, we think of ourselves as being more permissive and having more permission. I had this thought that actually, if I was writing this 150 years ago, I would have had more freedom in some mm. basic artistic way. So, so what I, I did was I effectively gave myself that full set of 19th century toolkit permission that um, you know, Trollope, Balzac, Flaubert, Stendhal, actually less so Flaubert, Flaubert's very prock by my point of view, um, uh, Dickens got gold, all that, that, you know, that they could know anything, they could go anywhere. Mm. And it was a really energising and useful thing, and it was also quite interesting for the permissions I didn't want, you know, that I had things that were in the toolkit that I didn't use, which, one of which was the sort of direct address to the reader, a kind of sermon to the right. reader. And, and the other thing was a thing I don't love in the English tradition but meaning English-English, not English-language, which is that the English novel has a big thing about massively being about passing moral judgment while pretending not to. (laughs) So there's a kind of, you finish most English fiction in the classic tradition knowing exactly what you're meant to think of every single character, sort of moral marks out of 10. Um, But the the novelist doesn't actually tell you that. and it's often very funnily done, and it's from Austen to Forster, it's a big thing all the way through. Um, but actually, I don't love that. I, I, I prefer the, the traditions where it's more, the, the moral judgments are more up to the reader. Hmm. And so that thing about, that you get in English fiction of, 19th century fiction of the character's like butterflies on a pin. You know, they're fixed in place morally, that their worth is completely assigned, and uh, boof, like that. And I, I didn't want to do that. I, hmm. I, it felt, I felt I couldn't do that and have it feel like a contemporary
1: work. I remember a reviewer um, speaking about one of your earlier novels, comparing it. Uh, no, I think it was The Debt to Pleasure and comparing it with your first novel and observing that you don't have a recognisable voice in the sense that you always kind of know what you'll get if you pick up Martin Amos, for instance. And Capital's another shift entirely. Have you felt yourself evolving, or have you always just wanted to write in different ways?
2: It, it's it's more it's more it's more sort of basic than want. I, I feel um, that when I've finished a book, it's sort of it's like it's like the cupboard. You know, I was talking about the, the scary cupboard that or Bluebeard's castle. For me, a, a book is a sort of um, it's a like a place in my head that I go into when I'm writing the book. And it often has a, you don't, you don't necessarily, you don't write the books that are your best ideas, you write the books that won't leave you alone. Mm. The idea that you can't get out of your head is that that's the thing you end up writing. And so there have all been things that I was preoccupied by, I was thinking about for a long time, that I inhabited. And it's like going into that room and living in that room for a bit. And then once I've come out of that room, I have no reason to go back. You know, it's like there's nothing there anymore. Um, and I, I really like artists who repeat whose books are variations on a theme and who return to worlds. And I actually like the thing about a recognisable tone across books. But I, I can't do it. You know, I, I, I just... Because that, that bit of me isn't there anymore. Hmm. I mean, I think in general, maybe in the West, we exaggerate the stability and continuity of the self. I think we are more we think people. we think of the, the human psychology as being a kind of edifice, being like a building and I think it's almost more um, like, a, like a poem or a work of art. It has different themes that recur in different ways. I think we're, we're more different from our past selves than we sometimes realise and I think that's basically the reason my books are different is actually um, I, I, you know in a I didn't write them, if you see what I mean. Yes. You I mean, definitely... The me, the me who's here didn't write them. You
1: are definitely not sounding like an economist at the moment.
2: Um, John Well, Ban- he would immediately point out the costs and benefits. <laughs> yeah,
1: of course. John Banville uh, wrote an introduction to a later edition of Debt to Pleasure, and he, he said that the book was part of your ongoing critique of the consumer society and I do detect, and, and that was that novel, and then with Capital, which is perhaps where these Dickens um, comparisons come in, there is a sense of, of moral outrage somewhere in there underpinning, underpinning this. Not, you know, you are a social critic of sorts.
2: Well, I thought, you know, one of the things that, one of the things that happened in, in London and um, that I feel I, s- I saw happen in my adult lifetime was a, a shift from, lots of different kinds of values and beliefs people you know having value invested in all kinds of different areas of life to becoming a society where the primary determinant of worth worth and value was money and it happened from, from Mrs thatcher onwards that, that that money became more and more and more important and worlds that were intact and separate football being an example you know when I was first interested in football, I used to write football match reports, and um, you know, if you were having a conversation about football, you were having a conversation about football. Hmm. And now when you talk about football, you pretty soon you end up talking about money. And Russian, Russian oligarchs. Yeah, and the, and the, you know, who's bought who, um, whose wage bill is what, which manager's been bought in, all that sort of thing. And I think that's one of the things that I was trying to write about in Capital, that a, a society that, had slightly lost its moral compass and had it replaced by a sense of, you know, values that are just purely monetary.
1: It does feel extraordinary being in London sometimes when you stumble across those nodes of super wealth and you realise that, that this entire department store is not for normal people.
2: No, and How do
1: you navigate the city these days? It's,
2: well, I, it helps that I didn't grow up there. Um, Miranda, my wife, did grow up in London. And I think she's more disconcerted by that than I am. You know, that there were bits of the city that were much more mixed that have now been hollowed out. I think Ooh. it's, I think it's a, a negative trend for a city to have so much reliance on just purely international super wealth. And we have a particular thing here, which I know is, you're starting to get glimpses of in Auckland, of a lot of absentee foreign capital mm. in the property market and that's that's a, a fairly pure bad thing in my view foreign investment good thing but absentee foreign capital in what's been called safety deposit boxes in the sky you empty know, apartments empty in apartments in the... and they're just ways of removing capital out of your own legal jurisdiction and and parking it somewhere mm. safe and you know frankly in london quite a lot of that the super wealth There's an old saying that if you want to be really, really rich, rich, the three ways to do it are inherit inherit it, marry it or steal it. And quite a lot of that money in London is is stolen money. It's expropriated from all sorts of dodgy regimes all around the world. And they move it in London because property rights Mm. are incredibly well defended in London. And we have libel laws that make it very difficult to say, you know, how your Kyrgyz tycoon acquired is several hundred billion. And so it's a kind of win-win from their point of view. It's very hard for anyone to get the money back and no one can tell the truth about them.
1: Do you think somewhere in that truth, you know, and the fact that and I've, people have called the city of London, you know, the biggest laundry in the world, that it infects the psyche of the city, that, there's a, that there is
2: something morally corrupt in, in London these days because of that? There certainly are in pockets of it. And that thing about, you know, the biggest money laundering operation on earth is true. Mm. And there are whole, you know, companies that offer extensive suites of services just to kind of clean up and launder money, a lot of it through the property market. Um, And I I think I'm resistant to the idea that it's a sort of general moral contaminant, partly because there are so many bits of the city that have nothing to do with that. And there are even bits inside finance that have nothing at all to do with that. Mm. And people who wouldn't do that, you know. And at the same time, it is, I think, destructive to have this parallel reality. You know, have a, you know, you, you go over by one minute on your parking meter, you get a ticket. Um, you know, this, all sorts of things are monitored and supervised and controlled by the state. And yet, there is a kind of lawless alternate reality for the international criminal super-rich. I mean you know, Bond villains in Bond movies live in, you know, hollowed out mountains and all that stuff. In real life, they live in London. Mm. And, and, and London has, and, and that's because it's the best place to live, if you're a Bond villain. And, uh, you know, it's hard to not to think that that has some corrosive effects.
1: The other thing you've mentioned about, or you've written about London that really struck a chord with me um, was, was your observation that it simply got too big <clears throat> relative to the population of the United Kingdom. That, that extraordinary um, equation you, you, you um, offered where if you added up the biggest five cities in the United States combined still don't actually have the same population to per capita ratio as London does. Yes,
2: uh, I mean you are, in fact <clears throat> it's, you know, it's um, New York, Boston, Miami, Dallas, Washington, LA, San Francisco—it's the top thirty <laughs> right. American cities you add together that aren't as big as London. And, and you know, in addition to that, it's the political capital, it's the financial capital, it's the cultural capital, it's the television capital. It's where you go if you want to make it uh, in internet startups. It's where you go if you want to make it in music, in movies. All of those things. It's called a
1: primate city.
2: And and it's where all the rich people are and it's it's the most ethnically diverse place in the country. And I think one of the drivers behind the Brexit vote was a a strong feeling that people outside London just don't look at it and they don't recognise themselves. They look at their own capital city and they see a thing that doesn't look like them, doesn't look like their values or their life and has all the power and all the money. And I think one of the drivers of the Brexit thing was to think, well, those people who ignore us and couldn't care less what we think, let, let's see if they can ignore this. I think that yeah. was a big driver. And, uh, and, you know, and I think, having said that, that we were discussing this before, yeah, Auckland's twice as big proportionally Auckland's, in relation Auckland's to the Zealand. Auckland's closing
1: in on being, it'll be half the population of New Zealand in the near future. So, I mean, uh, yeah, we are interested in the lessons that we might learn in advance.
2: Well, I, well, I think, you know, one of the lessons that we, we're, I wouldn't say we've learnt it, really, we're just staring at the consequences of not having learnt it, is, is mind the gap. You know, it's, it, <laughs> um, and it's, it's dangerous to have two big gaps in society, and it's dangerous to have, that, I'd never heard that phrase, primate city, and I think it's particularly dangerous if the rest of the country is looking at it and saying, that, you know, that's, that's not us. Yes.
1: It requires a degree of political planning and vision and insight that I suspect we're lacking in our political class now, and these are the same people there where you live as they are here, I suspect, don't understand the financial language that they really should, they should have a better grasp of. Um, so, I'm a bit of a pessimist on that, on that score. I wonder how you feel about the ability to change course.
2: Well, I think one of the, I think one of the things that's very difficult is it's, it's hard for politicians to address a thing when something is growing too fast, when it's accelerating away. Because all the instincts in that are to, you know, growth is good. It doesn't matter where the money's coming from. It's all good. You know, um, bigger is better. And that's a very yeah. difficult instinct to resist. And as I say, we spectac- I don't feel we can, I can offer any sermons about it because we so spectacularly failed to do it in the UK. And one of the things that we didn't realise collectively was the extent to which if you, if you want to grow a bit of your economy, if you want to like double the size of a particular sector, you can't do it really in any other area as quickly as you can in finance. You can't, New Zealand can't double its agriculture in five years, it can't double its movie industry in five years but it could double its financial sector in five years just by taking away all the rules because the money goes where there are no rules and that's what happened in London we completely deregulated in 1986 It was called the big bang some would Um, argue that there are no rules left to here to be got rid of but I don't know enough about that but I but I do know that that's that's what happens in terms of kind of inflow of international capital and hot money Um, and it's just looking for the place where it can get up to the most stuff and that really is, I think, if you had to change, if you had to put the whole of modern British history over the last 30 years down to one moment, I think that moment of total regulation in 1986 is, is the one I pick.
1: We'll go to questions in a minute, but I'll ask one more um, from up here. The, the word or name that is always mentioned now in the same breath as Brexit, of course, is Trump. And in some ways, they're both phenomena related to exactly what we've been talking about earlier, the the, the GFC um, and the impact on ordinary people, um, the alienation um, from the good times. Um, So I'm just interested in your reaction to the Trump phenomenon. To me he strikes me more as a a symptom than a cause, Um, but a symptom of what I guess is what I'd ask you.
2: Well the thing is symptoms can turn into causes, that's the other thing. I mean, he's definitely not going to make any of it better. I, I, do th- I, do think there's, I don't think there's a causal link between Brexit and Trump, but I think uh, there's a, a sense that they're symptoms of this same thing, a division between insiders and outsiders, mm. people who feel they have no power left, no agency, no, no lever to pull. And I think there's that thing about, you know, let's see if they can ignore this. I think there's an element of that in the Trump vote because the, the, vote, the, the election was swung by, I think, 77... I think you strip it right down, 77,000 people in three states, yeah. Wisconsin, Ohio, Michigan. And th- those people voted for Obama twice and then voted for Trump. So there's racism, there's misogyny, there's all sorts of really dark things going on, but there are also desperate people who just think, you know... As, a, as I say, I think it's to do with that feeling of see if you can ignore this um, and it's i think catastrophic and uh, profoundly misguided but that's not the same thing as saying it's impossible to understand
1: the paradox of trump is is in in a sense is that he, he's an outsider an insider outsider and the political establishment in washington
2: really um you just can't tolerate him can they So well, the congressional Republicans have voted along with him ninety-eight percent of the time. So they're doing a pretty good job of tolerating him up to now.
1: They can, but I'm looking at the what you would call the mainstream media now, and I've never seen such a response.
2: Yeah, and you actually wonder if it's helpful though, in terms of the because the thing that is going to get rid of him, which devoutly, I mean, intuitively feels to me that we can't have four years of this, but the thing that's going to get rid of him isn't what we think, and it's what the people who voted for him think. It's when they change their minds about him that change will happen, because the Republican... He's, he isn't a Republican. They're mm. going to drop him as soon as they can, because they get everything they want with, with Pence. Yeah. Um, uh, but it's that moment of, when, when will the mask slip? And I think it will be an equivalent thing to what happened with, with Bush too. You know, everyone on the left hated him. Everyone um, felt we had seen through him. But that didn't happen to his own support because his his approval Mm. numbers stayed consistently high through Iraq, Afghanistan, all of that, until Hurricane Katrina. And it was actually actually the single image, it was him looking out the window of the plane, looking down at this drowned city from Air Force One, you know, not bothering to Mm. really engage. Oh, look at those little people down there. And his ratings cratered and never recovered. And that wasn't because of anything anyone said, it was just that sense of, oh, that's who you are. Mm. And my hunch and my hope with Trump is that it will be an equivalent moment where it's not what it's not what anyone says about him; it's what he reveals himself to be, and that and that the supporters will will recoil. <laughs>
1: One does wonder how many more clues he can give, but time is up. Time is money. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Thank you. Thank
1: you very much. Um, you. It's been lovely uh, talking to John. Um, as you know, he'll be signing books out in the, in the foyer. So I recommend heartily that you grab a bunch and get them signed and, um, and pay your money down. Um, thanks again to Heartland Bank and thank you very much for coming. Good thank night. You.
2: Thank you very much.
0: You. Our 2017 Auckland Writers' Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website writersfestival.co.nz